For the last two weeks, I've dealt with the question of why the chief priests and Pharisees did not recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah of God. Two weeks ago, I examined who would lose and who would gain if Jesus was executed. The chief priests made their living uh, maintaining the status quo In the temple in Jerusalem, the Sadducees were the political leaders of the Jews and profited from their relationship with the hated uh, Roman rulers. The Pharisees were the leading businessmen of the Jewish society and had a vested interest in keeping things going without interference from the Romans. There used to be a sardonic saying that uh, what is good for General Motors is good for America. Change that to what is good for the Pharisees is good for Israel and you'd have their prevailing mindset. Excuse me, the, I don't know about your cars, but all my cars have turned green from the pollen. So, And uh, it suddenly hit me last night. Last week, we delved into Old Testament prophecies and saw Jesus asking repeatedly, have you never read? Have you never read? Have you never read? My takeaway from that is that Judaism, both then and today, they had, have, never read, or taught, or sermonized on what Old Testament Messianic prophecies actually meant. And if anybody thought I was too hard on Jews of today for not teaching these things... Most Christians don't know them either. What can I say? So it's not just picking on the Jews, but as was brought out last week, they were given the scriptures and the responsibility to bring the prophecies of the Messiah and the arrival of the Messiah to the attention of the rest of the world. That was their job. In some circumstances, Jesus was... Rejected out of greed. We can also say that Jesus was rejected because of the hardening of the hearts of the Jewish leaders. We can say that Jesus was rejected purely out of ignorance of the peoples involved. But there's another reason that Jesus the Messiah was rejected by the Jews of his day, and it's something we see increasingly. In this postmodern world, we find ourselves in today. The rejection of our own lived history. Okay? They, they, they lived through this time and yet rejected. The people of 48 AD that Paul is preaching to in city in Antioch have the lived memory of the coming of the Messiah. Even if they did not know the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Christ, they knew John the Baptist. Uh, it was said that many of the followers of John the Baptist came from Asia Minor. Uh, it was a drawing point from that he brought people in from the Asia Minor region to follow him. They all knew about his announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God, that the Messiah was at hand. They knew about the miracle worker and the miracles of Jesus. They knew about him because 
he was a sensation even at Jesus' trial that would see him crucified. Herod was happy that Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to him because he was looking to see a miracle. He thought Jesus was going to do something and he was happy for that. Everybody knew about Jesus. Everybody knew about the resurrection of Lazarus. It was the talk of Israel before the Passover was celebrated for Jesus' final time. They knew that Lazarus had died, came back from the dead, and we know that because they plotted to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus to get rid of the incriminating evidence. They also knew about Jesus' own resurrection because even more than Lazarus, this was done under the noses of the Roman guards and there was no getting away from this. However, this was still not enough to convince the masses. Now, I grew up in the um, western San Fernando Valley, uh, which in the early 60s, if, if you didn't live there, you don't know what, what would go on there. At times, from, my, from the time I was five or six on, suddenly the mountains would start shaking. The valley would start shaking. It wasn't an earthquake. There would be a roar from the mountains. I mean, something you couldn't, can't even believe. And smoke would rise over the tops of the Santa Susana Mountains. We lived just mere miles from the Santa Susana Field Laboratory where they tested all of the rockets that would be used in the Gemini Apollo space missions and things you don't know when you're growing up. The first 10 nuclear reactors in the United States are in those mountains. Four of them melted down. And uh, they didn't let us know about it. It was just a regular occurrence growing up that all it was almost biblical. It's like living at the foot of Mount Sinai, okay? With God speaking to Moses and rumbling down. The mountains would erupt, huge noise, smoke. Because Chatsworth was a small town back then, going to grammar school. I knew many friends whose parents worked for either Hughes Aircraft or Aerojet or Rocketdyne, which is what then the Santa Susana Field Lab was called. It was just called Rocketdyne, which really stokes the imagination of a kid. You know, Rocketdyne. I loved that. Now, my best friend's father growing up was named Jim McCafferty, and he worked for Rocketdyne. In fact, if you ever saw any of the newsreels of space missions or, or uh, the Gemini uh, with uh, John Glenn and things like that, those were produced by my uh, friend's father. He was in charge of technical writing for Rocketdyne. And I remember one of the last times I ever saw him, in the early 70s, mid-70s, suddenly everybody was doubting if we ever went to the moon. They would say, there, there was a book out called We Never Went to the Moon. And the trouble with that book was 
It was written by a technical writer at Rocketdyne who worked for my friend's father. And this is the basis for the last 45 years of people thinking we never went to the moon. Now, my friend's father would say, he knows we went to the moon. Why is he doing this? He was there. He knows the tests that were done. It didn't come out of the blue. I know it didn't come out of the blue. I mean, I heard all through my childhood the rocket tests. But he's saying, why does he say these things? I said, well, you know, almost the last time I saw this fellow, uh, before I moved up here, I said, well, you know, maybe he made a lot of money doing, you know, it's always follow the money. Maybe he made a lot of money. And no, it was a self-published little pamphlet, 200 pages, self-published. I said, well, you know, maybe he liked the fame. And Jim said, no, he's a hermit. (laughs) He doesn't want the publicity. He's a hermit. And the whole question was, why in the world would he say something that he knew to be patently untrue? Well, the answer died with him. And 45 years on, people are still claiming we never went to the moon. Researching this, looking it up, just to make sure I had dates right. Joe Rogan was talking, he's a podcaster, Joe Rogan was talking about it recently. Joe Rogan believes we did not go to the moon. He has doubts about that. So still, still, people are believing something that lies within my lived memory. Two weeks ago in our study of Paul's sermon in city in Antioch, we read Acts 13, 16 through 23. I'm going to bring us all up to date with two short readings here. Paul addressing the synagogue after he's asked to read by the leaders. says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, as he promised. The history of Israel in brief, up to the coming of the Messiah, is what Paul delivered to them. Last week we covered the next six verses, the ministry of John the Baptist and the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Verse 24 through 29. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. 
No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So today we'll go on with the next five verses or so. Verse 30 through 37, I believe. So seven verses. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you holy and the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Now, some critics... Say this sounds so much like Peter's sermon at Pentecost that Luke must have copied and pasted it. It's just straight out of what Peter had preached. But as I pointed out back then, this is what's called the kerygma or the teaching of the apostles. Remember, there was no written scripture at this time. The Gospel of Matthew was still probably a couple ways away uh, from being written at this time. So when you're gathering in a church, what are you going to preach? There is really only one thing to preach. You preach the story of Jesus, the story of Israel. And that is your preaching. Paul gives us this kerygma in 1 Corinthians 15.35. Later on in his life, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Now notice that just as in the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 passage that I often use for communion and probably will use for communion today. He says he received it. It's not something that he copied. He did not take it from Peter. He didn't learn it from the apostles. He learned it directly from Jesus Christ instructing him, probably in Arabia, after his conversion on his way to Damascus. So in verse 30, Paul tells those in the synagogue that after Jesus was killed and laid in a tomb, but God, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. This was the ultimate vindication of Jesus. 
Uh, I used it somewhere else. You know, the, uh, the sentence is reversed upon appeal. Jesus is killed by the Romans at the behest of the leadership of the Jews. And God says, no, that's not going to stand here. This showed where God stood on, stood on the matter. Daryl Bach, a, comment, a very good commentator, says that up to this point, the Jewish leaders and Pilate had handled Jesus, but now God has acted on his behalf. In Romans 1-4, Paul would later write that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Verse 31 here says, But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul says that not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but there are witnesses. Okay? Luke gives no names either here or in the Gospel of Luke, but in the uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, does give names of people that are alive. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, and remember, 1 Corinthians is written 20 years after, maybe not quite 20, 15 years after Paul is now here in the city in Antioch. So even 15 years later, he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And finally, he points out, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And he goes on and he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. This is who is standing before the people, saying that there are witnesses of the resurrection and of the resurrected Christ and one of them is a fellow speaking to them to their face it would not be a surprise if someone in that synagogue that he's speaking in knew someone who saw the risen Christ many were still alive that short 15 years later verse 32 through 33 says So we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now Paul, having preached through the relatively current events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and uh, the witness uh, witness thereof, now goes on to the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. So he's covered this this brief lived history uh, shared by most of the people in the audience that he's gone through himself. Now he is going to take them back 
to the Old Testament prophecies. The first is from Psalm 2, which is a royal psalm that is ultimately about the Messiah. But at the time, everybody was saying, well, this is about King David. King David. And Peter has brought this psalm up to them in the sermon at Pentecost. And now Paul does it also. Because Psalm 2 is ultimately about the Messiah. The good news that Psalm 2 announces is that God has fulfilled the promise he made a thousand years previously. He has raised up his Messiah in Israel. Now, he raised him up having him being born as a baby. He didn't come full-blown onto the scene as a conquering king. He was a baby. People knew him. We've seen in the scriptures earlier, is this not the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Where did he learn how to talk like this? So, people have known Jesus since he was uh, a baby. He has now been begotten, the true Messiah, the son of David. Not only did God raise Jesus from a baby to be the Christ, the Messiah, but then he raised him a second time from the very grave as a divine sign that indeed Jesus was the Son of God, the only begotten of the Almighty. Verse 34, Paul now turns and links Psalm 2 to Isaiah 53. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he is spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now, Paul takes this verse from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The prophet Isaiah in this way teaches that the resurrection was how God distributed the blessings that were given to David for the people because this this statement says that it's for David but it's going now to the people. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Any Jew would know that the holy things of David alludes to the Davidic covenant that that the Messiah would come from from David, that the Messiah would then bless all nations. Paul now brings in Psalm 16.10 to show that the resurrection of Jesus was prophesied. Verses 35 through 37 say, Therefore he says in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In Acts 2, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he also preached about this prophecy, thought to be, like I said, about David by some, but was actually about the promised Messiah. And though we've studied this before, it's very quick and I will Go over that once again at Pentecost and see what this sounds like. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did he his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Paul and Peter's teachings are identical. The promise cannot be about David. David died and was buried and did indeed see corruption. So Paul preaches, preached to those in city and Antioch from Israel's known and cherished history at first, leads them through it, Then he took them through recent history that many still alive had seen with their own eyes. And then from prophecy, from the words of God. Now, was this enough to convince everyone who heard his words? Next week we'll see, because a lot of people were excited. They were excited about what Paul had to say in this this sermon. And yet, and yet, you'll have to wait and see. But for the answer, I'll take you back to the 1950s San Fernando Valley. Like I said, the hills and the valley floor would shake, a roar would shatter the quiet, a black cloud would rise in the western sky like like a prophecy of God speaking about space exploration to come, right? We knew what was going on in those hills. On a, on a hot July evening in 1969, some of you are too young to have seen this, but I was set, sitting in front of a TV, like probably any of you of the right age were, with the rest of the world, watching a man walk on the moon for the first time. A few short years later... I was working in a machine shop and made the, la- the running gear for a lunar rover, okay? I touched something that went up to the moon. It broke, but I touched it. I made it. I'm, I'm sure that it was my part that broke because I wasn't real good at this stuff. Finally, in what a lawyer would call an argument against interest, there was this. You know, everybody says, you know, Who knows if we really went there? Well, the Russians and the Chinese, we went there. 
The USSR had the means to expose the Americans at the time. It was listening in. And uh, we were there at a Soviet military base, 32103, the Russian cosmonaut Alexei Leonov recently recalled. He said, we sat there with our fingers crossed. We hoped the guys would make it. We wanted this to happen. We knew those who were on board, and they knew us too. We knew them. They knew us. Looking back to a city in Antioch, to the lived history they had gone through, they knew people who had followed John the Baptist. They knew people who had followed Jesus. They knew people probably who had seen the resurrected Christ. And those people knew them. There was a personal, personal connection between them. So I had heard the roar of Atlas engines my whole life. I had seen the landing with my own eyes. I heard the testimony of enemy competitors. I had touched moon pound parts with my own hands. My testimony is... Yes, we did land on the moon. This is my testimony. Yet a few years later, a man with no evidence, and there was no evidence in this pamphlet, just general assertions, wrote a pamphlet that for half a century has perpetuated a lie that we never went to the moon. Now, contrast that For 2,000 years now, others have denied what men saw with their own eyes and testified to. They saw it, just as I saw the moon landing. They saw Jesus. Herod waited for a miracle because enough people had seen Jesus do miracles. They knew for 2,000 years what scripture prophesied that God raised Jesus from the dead. A foretaste for what is to come for mankind, personal resurrection to a life everlasting. And yet, the denials and revisionist history continue, right? And you hear it every day. They say we're living in a post-Christian world now, and I don't doubt it. Um with the Satan clubs in schools, Satan clubs in schools, with the mockery of Christians, with, with everything, every breath these people are taking, they deny what has been known for 2,000 years. But what they say cannot change what God has decreed. Jesus as Paul says here, was the Messiah that was sent for the world through Israel to bless all the nations. Let's close in prayer.